Good morning, Grace Point. It is so great to see you today. I'm so glad you're here. Um, if this is your first time especially, we're thrilled that you found us wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching this. Uh, welcome. We're, we're really just glad you're here. So last week we wrapped up a series, and this week we're going to begin a new series. And um, this is one that I'm really excited about. It's one of my favorites. It's a series I've done different iterations of over the years, and it's called Bible Stories for Grownups. And this particular go-around, we're going to focus on stories from the Hebrew Bible, from what some people call the Old Testament. And, and what I hope happens in this series is that we approach these stories, stories that are super familiar in some ways to us, but we approach them with maybe with some different eyes, with some different ways uh, of understanding what's going on in the text. I hope this will be both fun and really, really helpful. We're going to start next week by looking at the story of Noah uh, and the ark. And that's going to be, I mean, that's a, that's a tough story. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to being able to get into it. Today, though, before we jump into actually going through the stories, what I'd like to do today is I just want to talk about what do I mean by a grown-up faith? What, what does that actually entail? And so I want to talk a little bit about how this has happened for me and what it looks like for me. Uh, and maybe it'll be something that you, you find useful as we go through this. And I want to begin by just saying that everybody, everybody brings a certain level of expectation and assumption to the Bible. Things we expect it to say or we assume that it says. Things that we maybe even <laughs> wish it would say or wouldn't say. Right? We, we all bring this to the Bible. And even people like preachers or church people who tell you, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm not interpreting it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's actually impossible. And here's why. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible reads and we make it say. And the making it say part of that is what we call an act of interpretation. The very moment we say something about the Bible, we read a text and we say, well, here's what it means. This, it means this, we are engaging in an act of interpretation. I remember being in elementary school in the, the mid eighties, mid to late eighties. And sometimes when we'd go to lunch, we'd come back and the teacher wouldn't be in the room yet. And so we would always try to find our way up to the teacher's desk and to find one of those teacher edition books. And so, because what we knew, I was always bad at math. And what I, I knew was if we can get at that book and we can turn to the back, there's like this secret section where all the answers are. And if we could get a hold of that, this would make math so much easier for us. Now, we were never really successful. Um, but I, I think we should just say we don't have that when it comes to the Bible. There is no teacher edition. There is no edition where all the answers to the tough stuff, to the difficult questions, to the awkward moments, to the stories that portray genocide and God's... Like, there is no answer book in the back of the Bible. In, interpretation is a vital part of engaging with scripture. It's a vital part, not only in like dealing with what a text says, but even in the translation process, interpretation is part of the equation. Because in the translation process, sometimes scholars come across words that can mean different things depending on how and when and what case they're used in. And sometimes they've actually, in a couple of New Testament cases, they've stumbled upon words which it seems like the author either invented to describe something but because there was no real precedent in the ancient world in, in Greek for that. So even in the act of translating the Bible, people are making interpretations. That's why translations sometimes say different things. There are some, some translations are better than others in the way that approached it. Some translations... You, you definitely there, there can be biases in translations. That's just that's just part of it because as human beings we cannot engage without interpreting. And so we all, staying on that theme, we all bring a lens to the Bible, a, a way of seeing and understanding that shapes what we think about reality, 
what we think about the world, and in this case, what we think the Bible is saying. Not saying, reading. It's an unavoidable reality. We have a lens, and that lens will affect the way we interact with the world, with describing what meaning is, and with engaging with the Bible. Where we lived, how we were raised, where and how we were educated, all of that plays a role in how we interpret the Bible. The problem occurs when we're either unaware of this lens, so we don't, we're not aware that, like right now I have contacts lenses in, uh, and it's like, I, I can't really even tell they're in there, right? So I may think I'm seeing just exactly what is, but actually I have a lens that's correcting it so I can actually see it sharper and farther away because I, I can't see far away as well. The problem is when we assume we are unaware of the lens or we assume we don't have a lens, that somehow we are the one objective party or our pastor or our church or whatever is the one objective party that has access to the facts as they really are when what we all are doing is engaged in an act of interpreting. And so that lens, being aware of that lens, knowing it's there and, and like allowing for it are, are central. So as we seek to embrace a grown-up faith, it begins by acknowledging and being aware uh, we acknowledge the lens, and we have to be aware of its limitations. And here's what I mean. I am a straight, white, cisgender male who has grown up in the South in the largest military and economic superpower the world has ever known to date. When I approach the Bible, I am approaching a library that was created by an oppressed, marginalized people who had been dominated through their history by one empire after another. So my lens if it's left unchecked, won't lead me to an understanding that is born out of the experience of the oppressed people who wrote the Bible. It actually will somehow make it my story and make it about me, when in reality, it's about what people like me have done to oppressed people for a very long time. This does not mean that I can't do the work to, to get to the meaning of a text, right? It doesn't mean that that's not. What it means is that I must first be aware of my lens if I really want to access the text as this, uh, this writing that was born out of an oppressed people group. A grown-up faith, I think, is born out of a journey. And it's the movement over time through different stages, or maybe we could call it different approaches. And so I want to talk about what I think those stages were for me, um, and maybe this will resonate with you, and I hope when we get to the end we, we can sort of maybe see what the journey has looked like. So I think we all begin with a kind of what we might call a pre-critical naivete. Like it, this, again, it's not an insult. We all start here. It's the only, actually the only place we can begin. What, what this pre-critical naivete approach describes is an approach to the Bible that asks few or no questions about where it came from, how it developed over time, possible contradictions or conflicts or tensions found within the text, the, the biases, historical or scientific accuracy, cultural context, literary genre, etc., all that stuff. It, it essentially says what a magnet that hung on our refrigerator when I was a kid said, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Right? Not asking any deeper questions like who wrote this, when they write it, where they write it, what was going on in the world when they wrote it. It just sort of says, hey, it's in the Bible. I take it at face value. I believe it. That settles it. And for me, this is summed up in childhood experiences, both of church Sunday school and even big church, but church Sunday school specifically. Um, and there's a program at my elementary school. And I'll just talk about both of those briefly. I have vivid memories of Sunday school as a small child. The classes were in the church basement, and we were told Bible stories by way of flannel graph. Um, raise your hand. I don't know how to do that. Raise your hand if you grew up hearing Bible stories on flannel graph. Um, if, you, if you don't know what that is, you should Google it. 
Um, and that's how I learned the Bible stories, right? They would put up these, on this felt background, they would put up these figures and they would go through and tell a story. The same was true at my elementary school. Now, if you can possibly believe this, this was in the 80s and in, uh, in early 90s in far eastern Kentucky. But every Thursday morning, we would have a woman named Miss Yates who would come and hold an assembly at the school. And the assembly was called Morning Stars. And she was, a, she was a really dear, kind woman. And she used a flannel graph every week to teach Bible stories. I, I, it seems crazy and appropriate. And if that were happening at my kid's school, I would not be really happy about it at all. But it was, you know, it was the late 80s, early 90s in far eastern Kentucky. It, it takes the holler a little while to catch up is, is kind of what I've learned. Um, in both of those settings, the stories were presented at a taken at face value perspective. There was no real thought about what they meant. Right beyond the obvious, if you run from God, a large fish will eat you, or if God tells you to build a boat, you need to listen, that sort of thing. That, that's pretty critical naivete. It doesn't ask the larger questions around a text or a story. It just sort of takes it at face value. If you run from God, a fish will swallow you, without getting into the, the deeper parts, like what, what is actually going on in the story? What is happening for more and more people, uh, that uh, people I'm talking to, and I'm sure people that you're talking to, is this shift, and there's a disruption of pre-critical naivete. And we can call this sort of interruption, whatever we want, this disruption. We can call it deconstruct, de- deconstruction. I-, I prefer sometimes to talk about it as, as an unraveling. Um, but for our purpose, let's just call it the critical approach. This approach is often born out of crisis. Something happens over time that eventually builds to a head of steam. You ignore it. It feels like, at least for me, it felt like I'm going to ignore this at my own peril. This is demanding my attention. Finally, you begin to see the Bible, and as a result, you begin to see faith differently. The critical approach to the Bible, as you might imagine, in difference from pre-critical, the critical approach asks lots and lots of questions about where it came from, how it developed over time, possible contradictions, contradictions, conflicts, or tensions found within, the biases that are in the text, historical or scientific accuracy, cultural context, literary genre, all those things. All the things you ignore in pre-critical suddenly come to the fore in critical. This critical approach is interesting in, is interested in taking it down to the studs and, and accepting nothing at face value, whatever gets built in its place. And sometimes it's actually just eliminating everything, dozing the whole thing and beginning something else in its place. The, the seeds of this approach for me were planted in my, you know, around the t- age of 11 or so uh, when we, I experienced some loss in my life as a kid. But those seeds may have been planted, but they were not sufficiently watered until I sat in a college classroom in the fall of 1999, and I was going to be taught the Hebrew Bible from a female Presbyterian minister who also happened to be a professor at that university. And I've got to give folks credit. They warned me. They, they warned me. They told me all about that slippery slope, that I was going to go to college and I was going to take religion courses and that my whole faith was going to fall apart and I'd become an atheist and that it would just be all, you know, it'd be all, all said and done. But I knew, I mean, right, as, as a 18, 19-year-old, know-it-all kid, evangelical kid, I knew what was going to happen. Was I was going to go into that classroom and I was going to ask her the tough questions and I was going to defend the faith, and I was going to defend the Bible as this inerrant, infallible text. And and because you know, I was an obnoxious preacher boy. We all went through that stage. And what happened twenty years later? I can I can admit this. They were one thousand percent correct. I did hit the slippery slope, and I hit it at full speed. 
What they didn't tell me, what they neglected to mention was how exciting it would be. Right? And this is not just a slippery slope. It was a slip and slide. And the more I went down it, the more questions I had. And as I would make discoveries about the Bible or where certain things came from or how like those discoveries were energizing for me. And it was so exciting. And I, I didn't know where it was going. And I honestly, at one point thought, I don't know that I'll still be a Christian at the end of this, but I've got to see where this goes because it's exciting and it's energizing. And I'm actually, I'm finally able to, to begin to articulate some of the problems I've had, some of the questions I've had, some of the doubts I've had all this time. And for me, it began in that college classroom, it began to really just come out, come out of me. And I needed to, to follow and whatever, whatever, however close in the ballpark I could get to whatever was true. I just wanted to be close to that. And so when I was around 23, I was just full on unraveling. And also at that exact same time, I was pastoring a church. And when hundreds of people show up on a Sunday, to hear a sermon from a pre-critical pastor, but instead they hear a sermon full of questions and uncertainties and new to them ways of approaching a story, they, they, some of them weren't really thrilled. And that's, that's kind of a mild way to put it. I was newly married, newly pastoring, and trying to hold together a church that wanted to hear things I could no longer give them. Um, also, I also needed, to, like, I needed an income because we, you know, we wanted to eat. By the way, can you just imagine a church paying a pastor not to reinforce and confirm its long-held interpretations and assumptions, but instead to challenge, push, and call the community to an expanded consciousness. Can you imagine if that's what they, like, but for, for me, it wasn't, that's not the interview process, right? That people wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And as much as people will often tell you, like, just tell me, the, tell me like it is, number one, you can never tell it like it is. You can only tell it as you are or as you see it. And second, when people are like, just tell them what they mean is tell them that I'm right. Tell them that I'm right. Tell them that we share this interpretation together. And, and this is the stage for me where I really started digging into history, the history of the Bible, the history of the cultures that produced the Bible, the process through which we ended up with a thing called the Bible. I began to notice tensions and contradictions in parts of the text almost as if the Bible wasn't speaking in one voice, but many voices. And it wasn't an argument as much as it was a sustained conversation. People from the same family who were growing up, it was sort of the Bible was like that dinner table where they were really digging in to the conversation. I also began to realize that the Bible contains different kinds of literature. And that if you approach all the text literally, it means um, both ignoring the real difficulties some of the texts present and also failing to appreciate what the various writers were up to. Um, and so for me, the upside was I, I learned so much by asking questions and becoming a student of so many brilliant thinkers. People who were pastoring me, the Brian McLarens of the world, the Marcus Borgs of the world who were pastoring me. They, they didn't know who I was, but through their work and the, the courage and the, the bravery it took for them to begin to say, hey, I don't know about that. Maybe we should, have, maybe we should talk about this. That for me was invigorating and I learned so much. But the downside for the process of hitting the critical stage for me was that it was, the whole process was happening in my head. And it was void of, of very, very little heart. It had, didn't have a lot of heart to it at all. The critical stage was and is essential, and, and, and that's, but that also wasn't the end of the journey for me. Um, it's actually something that I've brought with me into the next phase of the journey. But, but there was this sense of everything, if, if I, like I would, sit up late at night wondering which story is literal and which story is not literal. And, and when the Gospels tell 
similar stories about Jesus, but there are different details, like who's telling the, the right way? Who's telling the, the literal way it happened? And so in so many ways, I was just in my head wrestling with uh, questions that couldn't be answered. And eventually, um, that critical approach for me was incorporated and folded into what I, I would call a post-critical approach. It's what happens when you embrace the head and you discover that you still have a heart that longs to feel and to engage. It, it, post-critical includes all the things we learn, all the questions and discoveries we've had along the way. It also brings with it a continued need to think deeply and to ask questions and to engage the Bible and faith in intellectually honest ways. That doesn't go away. I still care just as much about being intellectually honest and ethical in the way I interpret the Bible. Not as a way to get people to do what, but as a way that takes the Bible seriously, which means not always taking it literally, right? But, but it's giving the, the text the respect of doing the hard work of learning language and learning history, all those sorts of things that have been part of my life. So post-critical brings all of that. It brings the need to engage the Bible, but it also, um, it's an approach that the post-critical transcends the critical in that it seeks to be fully integrated by bringing the head, all the questions and contexts, uh, et cetera, in the heart, all the feeling and meaning together. Post-critical doesn't just try to figure out what should be taken literally or non-literally. It includes that sometimes, but it also moves farther by asking what the more than literal meanings of a story might be. Discovering and wrestling with meaning is actually where the transformation we experience gets jump-started. And so for me, this stage, the post-critical, it includes the tools you learn in the critical, the, the questions, um, all, those, all those sort of um, trails you, you go down, imagining, wondering, the curiosity. I, I mean, my goodness, isn't, isn't for so many of us, the idea that you could bring curiosity to faith is a breath of fresh air. And so for me, though, it's not just sitting around and saying, well, did this happen or did it not happen? Because if it didn't happen, literally, I don't need to spend my time with it. Where I'm spending most of my time and where I'm maybe feeling the most engaged is in asking, you know, okay, believe whatever you want about whether things happen this way or not. That's what Marcus Borg always said. But let's talk about what the stories mean. And so as we lean into this series and as we begin looking at the stories of Noah and as we look at stories of Jonah and Daniel and Jacob and Esau and the time Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac, um, that, that one's going to be in there. As we look at the story of Ruth, as we, as we dive into these stories, I'm going to be coming from this post-critical lens as best I can. And instead of going along saying uh, in every story, well, I think this happened and this is probably a metaphor. This is a, I'm not, uh, there'll be times when we make reference to that because it means something for the story. But generally, my approach is going to be whatever we, we end up thinking about what happened and what didn't happen. The question I want us to wrestle with is what did this story mean? And for the first people who were, who were the recipients of these stories, who these stories were written down from their oral culture, or these stories were written down and they were the ones that were the recipients of them and were wrestling with, like, what did it mean for them? Because I think we have to begin with them. Because in some ways, when we approach the Bible, we are reading somebody else's mail, right? It was written to specific communities who often were dealing with very specific issues. And what I think we'll find as we dig into these stories is that some of these issues that these specific issues that these specific communities were wrestling with are issues that we are wrestling with today. And sometimes the Bible gives us a, a beautiful picture of where things could go and maybe even should go. And, and sometimes the Bible just says, like, don't do this. This is not the way to do it. And so we're going to try to tease that meaning out of these stories. We're going to ask 
when we jump in with a grown-up faith, with a, with a post-critical lens that says, yes, I'm going to ask all sorts of questions and I'm going to dig into everything I can, but I also want to, I also need, some, I need to feel something. I, I need a story to give some sort of, I want to wrestle with meaning. And I want to know what this story, what claim is it making, if any, on us? And what is it asking us to do in response? And so I, I hope over this next uh, seven to eight weeks together, we're going to dive into these stories and we're going to be pursuing meaning. Uh, we'll also talk about some stuff behind the text. That for if you're a Bible nerd, there'll, there'll be some stuff in there for you because um, uh, I'm a Bible nerd. So we, we have to we have to unite. Um, but but a couple things. So over the next eight weeks, I want to issue an invitation to to all of us. And, and it, I'm going to invite us to make maybe make some commitments at least to ourselves or to together to, to at least an approach. So here's the first one. Let's try to hear these stories afresh. If you've grown up in church or you've been around church for any length of time, you're going to have heard most of these stories. And what we end up doing is we end up making assumptions and uh, we end up having expectations about what's really going on there. And that, yes, we all are going to have assumptions and preconceived ideas about the stories. But let's try to allow ourselves, as we enter into them, let's try to allow ourselves to be challenged and surprised. Let's not find what we've always found because we're doing what we've always done. We're looking in the same way we've always looked. Let's, let's go into it with fresh eyes, with fresh questions, and, and let's use some curiosity and imagination to see where we end up. You know, so, sometimes when I'm showing a movie um, to, to my kids that meant a lot to me growing up or a cartoon uh, a series that meant a lot to me growing up and I'm introducing them to it, one of my favorite things is to see sort of the experience where they're engaging with it and I'm engaging with it. And sometimes I'm even surprised because it'd been a very long time since I'd seen it. And I had assumptions about what happened, but sometimes my, my memory of the plot wasn't exactly, you know, uh, spot on. And sometimes I forgot things that would happen. And so what, what if we came at these stories in a fresh way? Then I'd say, let's, let's try to enter these stories in all of their discomfort. Let's not sanitize them. Some of these stories are just plain difficult. They don't wrap up nicely and neatly. It's not a sitcom where in 30 minutes you go from a serious crisis to everybody's hugging and celebrating and everything's good. They don't wrap up neatly and nicely, but that's the way actual life is. And so what if we give ourselves permission to name that without feeling guilty or ashamed? That these stories are uncomfortable. There are parts of them we do not like. There are parts of them we do not need to emulate. There are parts of them that are really problematic. And the way Christians have tended to just sort of cover them up and try to keep all questions at bay hasn't been helpful. And that we need to be able to bring our honest questions and our honest issues and our honest doubts and all of those things. We need all those things we learned in the critical phase. We need to bring all of those things to these stories. But let's try to enter them in their discomfort, not assuming an end. Yeah, we know how the story's going to, let's enter them and discover them anew, discover them afresh, and let's do it in a way that perhaps allows us to enter into them and actually experience the awkwardness and difficulty of them. And then finally, let's try to approach them as best we can from a post-critical lens. Maybe your approach has been pre-critical, taking all these stories at face value, pulling out maybe a moral or a main idea, or perhaps you're seeing through a critical lens and you're in the stage of picking these stories apart, knowing there are real issues that should give us pause and assuming that these stories happened as they were written. But what if we all dig a little deeper together? And what if we try to understand the context and understand what good scholarship is saying about these stories and where they came from and, and how they emerged and changed over time? And then what if we seek to engage these stories to discover the claims that we're making, both for the original audience, and we have to remember them, that this is their mail, and we're the recipients of, uh, of the family tradition that's being passed down, 
So what does it mean for them? What does it mean for them? And how did they understand it? And then us today, what we are the recipients of these stories now. What do we do with them? What do they mean? How do they challenge us? How, how do we want to challenge them? How do we want to say, hey, that's that's not a, a perspective or a value we want to bring forward into whatever the Christian tradition is going to be in, in 500 years, right? We, there's some things maybe we want to leave behind. And so that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do with this series is to approach these stories um, each week to dig in and approach them in, as with new eyes as best I can and a fresh insight um, and, and to try to dig something out from a post-critical perspective that we can say, yeah, we can have really interesting discussions about where the stories came from, what they, what, what, who wrote them, and maybe this part's literal and this is not or whatever. But beyond that, let's really wrestle with meaning and with the claim these stories are making on our lives. And I'm, I'm so excited about this. Um, I, I'm excited to jump into the Noah story next week. And so um, if, you, if you haven't read the Noah story, I'd invite you just to maybe give it a glance this week if that's a thing you want to do. If picking up the Bible and reading it is not for you, then please don't feel pressured to do that. Um, but let's enter the story together next week. And from a, maybe from fresh eyes, maybe we'll learn some, some new things. And maybe we'll, we'll learn maybe what the story is trying to get at, both for its original audience and for us.